Leadership. All my life, I've been fascinated by what makes a good leader. Are good leaders born or made? Can leadership be taught? How do leaders lead if people don't trust to even listen? I grew up in Arkansas. Now I live and work in the innovation heartland of Northern California. During these last years of constant crisis, I've thought more deeply about leadership and what it takes to lead people, especially when trust is in limited supply. That's why I decided to create this podcast and to reach out to changemakers from different disciplines to hear what they have to say. As the host of this show, the most important things I can do are two things I learned in medical school, to ask good questions and then listen. Hello, I'm Lloyd Miner, Dean of the Stanford School of Medicine, and welcome back to the Miner Consult. In this bonus episode, it's my privilege to welcome this week's guest, NASA Chief Scientist and Senior Climate Advisor, Kate Calvin. Kate is an Earth scientist who has dedicated her career to one of the most pressing issues facing the future of our planet, climate change. Her research has explored and analyzed the relationship between humans and global resources, such as land, water, and energy. Now, she leads NASA's science programs, providing guidance on the agency's flagship science, technology, and infrastructure programs related to climate change. Thank you so much for joining me, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. What first awakened you to our climate challenges and inspired you to specialize in this field? So my background is in math and computer science, and I started researching climate change in grad school. Uh, but I've always spent a lot of time outside. So as a kid, I did a lot of hiking and camping, and we spent weekends on the boat in the summer. Um, over time, I started doing more and more hiking and biking. And I think when you spend a lot of time outside, you develop an appreciation for nature and awareness of weather. Um, and so for me, climate was this opportunity to combine my technical skills, the math and computer science and engineering, with something that mattered to me and that was a part of my life outside of work. What has your research taught you about human behavior and how we interact with natural resources? So the research I was doing was looking at humans in the Earth system and how they might evolve in the future. And so we looked at things like how energy and water and land interact. So when you grow crops, you need water. Um, some types of energy require land or water. Um, and as climate changes, though, your ability to produce in, um, energy changes, your ability to grow crops changes, because all of those are impacted by changes in temperature and precipitation. And so what we were trying to do is figure out how that would all evolve into the future. And we did this by asking what if questions. So what if you plant more trees? What if you change the way you produce energy? What does that mean um, for the earth and for human systems? And how did that research inform what you're doing right now in your current leadership role? So a lot of the research I was doing, it's very interdisciplinary in nature. So the people I was working with, I worked with physicists, I worked with economists, ecologists, hydrologists, and we worked together to combine all of our knowledge into a set of models. Those models used NASA observations, so I was familiar with the work that was going on in NASA from the Earth observation front, 
Um, NASA also has a climate model, and so we interacted with some of the people in their climate modeling group there in my old world. Um, but a lot of what I'm doing now is bringing people together, bringing, you know, trying to integrate climate science across the agency and science more generally, and that gets at this interdisciplinary skill set I developed. So now I'm working with astrophysicists and people that are doing, you know, earth science and hydrology and all of these different disciplines and, and bringing those together. What do you think everyone should know about climate change science, how we got to where we are today, and what could happen in the future? So climate is changing. Um, we've experienced uh, increases in temperature today. And with those increases in temperature, we're seeing more extreme events. There's more heat waves, more heavy precipitation events, more wildfires, sea levels are rising. So there are all these changes to our Earth system and the planet we live on as the Earth warms. We know from science that that warming that we're experiencing is because of increases in greenhouse gas emissions driven by human activity. We also know that how much more warming we get depends on future emissions. So future emissions determine future warming. And as warming increases, we're going to see more and more of those extreme events. So we expect to see more heat waves, more wildfires, increases in sea level rise, um, an increase in the in proportion of intense tropical cyclones. And some of those changes are irreversible. So once the sea level goes up and ice sheets melt, it takes very long time frames to get that back. When we think of NASA, we usually think of space stations and shuttle launches. What's been NASA's role in climate change science in the past, and what are some of the projects in the works for the future? So NASA has been um, understanding and, and observing the Earth for a long time. So you can think about some of these early pictures from astronauts from space where you can see the Earth um, and see the planet that we live on. We've had satellites for decades that take you know, more comprehensive pictures with different types of sensors to really understand both the state of the Earth today and how it's changing. And NASA also has climate, uh, climate modeling programs. We have applied sciences program, which takes those Earth observations and brings it to people that need to make decisions. So we can provide near real-time information on disasters like wildfires. We also develop technologies that can help mitigate or adapt to climate change. So we have a sustainable aviation program that's worked on reducing energy use and emissions from airplanes. Um, going forward, we, are, we have a bunch of Earth science missions um, planned in the, in the, in the near future um, to, to observe more of the Earth system and, and make a more comprehensive picture of the state of the Earth today and in the future. We know from data from NASA and NOAA that 2021 was the sixth warmest year on record. And many years in the past, as you've mentioned, uh, have been the warmest over the past decade. Now, you've researched strategies for mitigating the effects of global warming. What are the most important steps that countries like the United States could be doing to stop this trend? And what are the most important steps that industry should be considering? So what the science says is that future warming depends on future emissions, in particular carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. So limiting warming requires us to get to at least uh, net zero carbon dioxide emissions. So what that means is that as we need to, you know, as 
at any carbon dioxide going up in the atmosphere, you have to take out the same amount in order to limit warming. So you can think of that kind of like a bathtub. As long as the faucet's on, the water level's going to go up. As long as we're emitting more carbon dioxide, temperatures are going to go up. Uh, and so that's what the science tells us. Science also does um, provide information on different options to, to reduce emissions. So we can look at different technologies, different ways of, um, of producing energy or producing agriculture and what those mean in terms of emissions and also what they mean in terms of other aspects of the Earth system. So how much land do you need? How much water do you need for each? And what the science can tell us is about what those options are. Are there particular mitigating strategies and options that that you think we as Americans are embracing better than others? Uh, and what are the ones that we need to be focused on much more than we are today? Perhaps all of them, but but what stands out? Well, I think everyone's circumstances are different and everyone has different options. We live in different places. We experience different climate effects. We have different options for how we proceed in the future. And so what the science can tell you is, is what those options might, um, might be um, and, what, and what they mean for the Earth. And so there have been a few reports recently from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, or IPCC. If you're not familiar with that, they provide a comprehensive assessment of all of the literature on climate. And they produce reports, you know, every so often that update that state of knowledge. And one of the things that they've been doing in their more recent reports is looking at for different mitigation or adaptation strategies, what do they mean in terms of emissions or um, other things like biodiversity or water scarcity. And some of the things that you can learn from that, I can't, you know, cover all of the options that are covered in the report. I highly recommend looking through them. But just to give a few examples of the kinds of information you can get from there. Um, so strategies like that increase energy efficiency, they reduce the amount of energy you need, and that reduces emissions. Uh, strategies that reduce food waste will reduce greenhouse gas emissions and reduce the need for land to grow crops. And so there are a lot of different options out there. Everyone's circumstances are different. Everyone has different options. Um, and, and what science can give you is more information about that. Climate change policies are often perceived as a trade-off between saving the environment and supporting the economy. Do you think there's a way to serve both of these purposes, or do you think it's a matter of prioritizing long-term thinking over short-term rewards? Well, so one thing to note is that as climate is changing, we're experiencing more of these extreme weather events like, you know, intense tropical cyclones and heat waves and wildfires, and those impact people and infrastructure, and they have costs. So there's climate change has an economic cost um, of its own, just the change in climate um, and, and how we experience that and adapt to that co has costs. In terms of near-term versus long-term, what science can give us is information that can help us plan for the near-term or the long-term. So at NASA, we provide information on, on disasters in near real-time. So we can take our Earth-observing satellites and other tools and provide information on what's going on. So we can give information on something like wildfires. We can show where are the fires burning, um, what are the emissions associated that, with those fires and air quality effects. We can look at burn perimeters. 
We also have models that help us look further into the future. So that can help with planning in long term. So we can look at how the world might unfold in the future, and that can provide information for more long-term planning. And just as an example of that, we have a sea level rise portal. Um, and this, you can look at where, how much sea level has risen where you live. So you can click on a, a place in the coast, and then it'll also show you some possible ways that that might evolve in the future. So you can get a sense of what sea level rise might be in the long term. That's all extraordinarily beneficial. As individuals, we often feel powerless to move the needle on such a large-scale issue as the future of our planet, although you've just outlined some things that we should be informing ourselves of. And as you've said, uh, ultimately it comes down to uh, individual efforts and in, in, in local communities, and there'll be different needs in different communities. But what's your advice for people who are interested in making a difference? Uh, what can they do in their communities? What can they do as individuals? Yeah, it's um, everyone's circumstances are different. So it's, you know, I think it's really important to think about this as a, you know, and what the science can provide is, is, is information on that. I've given a couple of examples. There are a lot more. And like I said, what the science is trying to do is provide this holistic picture of the effect of different options. So not just what does it mean for emissions, but also what does it mean for water use or for biodiversity or land or other impacts. Um, and so that, that's the kind of information we as scientists can provide. And so as an individual is evaluating their options, they can look at that and, and make a more informed decision. During this pandemic, public health leaders have contended with an epidemic of misinformation about COVID-19 that has often been extremely harmful. There have been similar efforts to discount facts about climate change. What do you think can be done to communicate better and counter misinformation? So NASA enjoys broad public trust, um, and we're really effective at communicating complex science to people at all levels. So we provide information to scientists, to decision makers, to the general public. And we also do that, you know, different platforms. So bringing information to people in a way that they can understand it. So we have, you know, podcasts like this that, you know, appeal to one segment of the audience. We have very active social media. And what we're trying to do is to, to get information to people. But part of, you know, of communication is also about building trust. Um, and that's what NASA um, has. And part of our trust is that we are very open. We have open science, open data, and try to be as transparent as possible about the information that we're providing. The movie Hidden Figures aptly illustrates an untold story of the space program's diversity. Today, a big gap persists in STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. This is something we also contend with in medical education. What do you think we can do to inspire young women, especially young women of color, to choose career paths in STEM? I think one of the things that's important is understanding what the possibilities are. So when I was in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I just knew I liked math. Um, I didn't even know some of the possibilities. So I, I couldn't have imagined that I'd be in this role, which is really, really fun for me. And so I think one thing is just, you know, recognizing what the options are um, for people. And, you know, there's a whole host of jobs in STEM that people can have, and, and some of them at NASA and some of them in other places. I also think inspiring. This is something that NASA does. NASA inspires, and they provide these resources. So I was actually looking earlier today. We have a STEM website um, that provides information for people of all ages about the science going on at NASA. And so you can, you know, sort of look at, you know, for 
five to, people in fifth to eighth grade. Um, here's a set of resources and it explains the science, but it also sort of explains the scientists. Um, so the Climate Kids website at NASA shows some different climate-related jobs that you can get if you have a degree in STEM. And so we're trying to provide those resources and show people what a job in STEM could be. And we're doing this in multiple platforms. The other thing that we've put out is we have a graphic novel called First Woman, and it's about the first woman to explore the, um, the moon. And there's a graphic novel and there are apps that you can download in the app store on your, your, your phone um, to interact with this. And so trying to show people what are the possibilities, what could you be when you grow up. What was your experience as a woman who pursued scientific research? And what's your advice for young women who are interested in following this path? So I have always found it really helpful. Like, you know, I like to keep learning. So I started in math. I went into computer science and engineering, then into climate. Now, I, you know, in my climate career, I got more and more interdisciplinary and learned more and more about other ways of approaching the climate problem. And now I'm in this really broad science job where I get to learn astrophysics and planetary science and learn about other planets and other solar systems. And what I've always done is just keep learning, just look at the possibilities, ask lots of questions, and make sure that you, you know, don't don't be shy about asking those questions. You never know who you might meet and what you might learn from those experiences. I also think a few weeks ago I had the opportunity to have um, lunch with some young, some really inspiring young women who are interested in STEM. Um, and at the end of the lunch, one of the other um, more senior scientists that were in in the room gave those young women the advice to know that they belong. And I thought about that a lot. And I, I think sometimes we, we forget how important that is. When you're in a new situation, you can feel uncomfortable and like, well, maybe should I be here? Should I be asking questions? And you, you should. And so I think what I would say to the next generation is to keep learning, ask lots of questions, and know you belong. That's great advice. What Was there a leader, a public figure, or a person in your own life who inspired you on your professional journey? I've had the fortune to work with a lot of really, you know, incredibly inspiring and um, encouraging people throughout my career. And I feel like there's a different person at every step that's got me to where I am now. So I had a high school calculus teacher that really encouraged me to pursue a, a degree in math. Um, and that was really important to see someone um, that says, sure, get a degree in math. There's some really cool things you could do with that. Then in grad school, my PhD advisor is the one that introduced me to climate, and so I wouldn't be here if he hadn't sort of set me up with some questions about climate change that I could do research on. Um, and then, you know, in my first job, I had a, a boss that was really big into interdisciplinary work. I was coming from this engineering math perspective. He was an ecologist, and he, he, he introduced me to working with people outside of my field that didn't think like me. And that was really important for me getting into interdisciplinary work. And then I've had the fortune of seeing some really inspiring um, women leaders throughout my career that have shown me how to be a leader um, and what, you know, different ways that would work for me about taking on a leadership role. President John F. Kennedy inspired America to come together to dream big about science and technology with his 1962 speech about traveling to the moon. Sixty years later, we live in a different world when it comes to communication. Do you think it's possible for leaders to rally our country around a common, ambitious scientific aspiration today? I think this is what NASA does. NASA inspires 
One of the really fun things since I've gotten this job is telling people that I'm working for NASA, so friends and family. And I have a lot of friends and family that are not from science or engineering. And when I say NASA, every one of them has a story. They have a story about some launch they watched or some movie they saw that they really liked or um, some question about science. So, you know, wh what's going on with the Mars rover right now? I've gotten that question before. And, it, you know, it's really been really inspiring and interesting to see. You know, when you walk down the street, there's always a NASA T-shirt. And so this is something that NASA does. And we have a couple of ongoing really cool activities. So one of these uh, Moon to Mars, we're starting the Artemis program. There's some rollout activities with it later this, this week. But we have a series of increasingly complex missions that are going to uh, lead us to putting the, the first woman, the first person of color on the moon. Um, and so that's really inspiring to see and to, to, to think through. We also have all of this, you know, I'm in a, a role on climate and NASA has all these imagery and, and earth system data and climate related research and technology that is really important and inspiring. Maybe we could talk a bit about leadership in general and uh, your thoughts on, on leadership. What do you think makes a good leader? What are the essential attributes for an effective leader? I think one of the biggest um, and most important things about leading is listening. Um, so people come from different backgrounds, whether it's disciplines, where they're from, how they, you know, where they grew up, what they've experienced in life, and all of that gives a unique perspective on the world. And I think it's really important to hear all of those perspectives. And so one of the things I try to do is ask a lot of questions and to facilitate an environment where people feel comfortable sharing. I think sometimes in really large meetings, you end up with a conversation that's dominated by a small number of people. And so trying to set up a structure where people feel like they can share and that they have that opportunity and that they're you know, encouraged and acknowledged for what they've um, done. And then I also try to sort of encourage people to talk to me. Like, I, I want to hear what people are thinking, regardless of what it is. I think it's important for that. And it's been helpful, you know, in, in my career, like a lot of the research I was doing, we couldn't have gotten to where we were if we hadn't brought in voices from all of those different angles and looking at the problem. And I feel like the more you can talk, the more you can communicate as early and often as possible, the better the science and the product and the, whatever you're working on will be. And so I just really try, ask questions, listen, and, and encourage people to, to speak their voice. I agree with you. I think listening is probably the most underemphasized uh, yet most important attribute of of being an effective leader. And uh, oftentimes, as you just pointed out, we, we forget that one of the greatest powers we have is to ask questions. Um, and questions all, all too, you know, very, very commonly clarify issues far more than answers or, or, or statements do. And uh, so what you say really really resonates with me and, and with those whom I've admired as leaders. As NASA's chief scientist and senior climate advisor, you advise on the agency's science programs and science-related strategic planning and investment opportunities. As a leader in the scientific research community, what advice would you give to other leaders? So I think part of it would be what I, you know, telling what I think makes a good leader. And so that listening and asking questions, I think, is really important and encouraging that. I also think, you know, making sure you acknowledge um, the people that are doing work and get, give credit to that. And that's something that I'm trying to be very thoughtful about in my new role, is part of my job is to represent NASA science and to communicate it broadly. 
there are a lot of really, really incredible scientists at NASA that are doing the research I get to talk about. And I have the good fortune that I get to talk to them about it. And one of the best things about you know my job is hearing a scientist tell me about their, their life and their research and how they got where they were and what they've been working on and both learning from them so you get to learn from an expert, which is so much more, you know, so valuable as an experience, but you also get to see what they're really excited about. Um, and I think trying to be thoughtful about making sure you listen and acknowledge and give credit, because um, there, there are a lot of people, everything I tell you about, there's a whole team behind that that I'm really representing. And, and I want people to know not just NASA science, but also NASA scientists. That's great. We've talked a lot about the challenges associated with climate change. What gives you hope for the future? So people are really innovative. Um, and so if you think about it, like science and innovation have changed the world we're in today. You think about the last couple of years and how much virtual interaction we've been able to have. That's a product of innovation and science and technology. We flew a, a helicopter on Mars lots of times in the last year. That's innovation and that changes it. And because we've done this research and that technology develop, we have a better understanding of the, the world we live in. We know more about the universe and we have more ways of engaging with it. Um, so you think about where we've come from, you know, we can also think about where we might go with more science and innovation. Kate, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's insightful discussion with NASA's Chief Scientist and Senior Climate Advisor, Kate Calvin. If you haven't already, I encourage you to check out our other Minor Consult podcasts with guests like science writer Carl Zimmer, film producer Jennifer Todd, and famed political strategist James Carville. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind. Thank you.